As you take your copy of God's Word, I hope you'll find your way again to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. We're moving right along in Mark. Mark chapter 2, today will be in verses 1 through 12, a sermon uh, I have, or a text uh, I've titled after a line in it, we never saw anything like this. When was the last time that you were truly amazed by something? For me, I probably have to go back a little ways. What was it that amazed you, that caught your attention, that spurred you to awe and wonder? Was it something in nature, maybe one of our national parks, or just something along the route 550 going up north in New Mexico, beautiful stretch of road? Was it a sports play? Super Bowl was last week. There were some big ones there. Was it a book that you read or a great film that you saw? What was the last thing that truly amazed you? How did you respond to it? Did you shout for joy? Did you tell all your friends about what you saw, what you witnessed, what you read? Did you take pictures and selfies and videos of it? Did you cry tears of wonder and awe? Did you worship? In Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, a crowd of people in a small lake town home saw something they had never seen before. Something that strained at their traditions, something that blew their minds, something that took them by surprise, but ultimately led them to glorify God and worship. In Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Jesus, a well-known passage by many of us who have been in church for some time, Jesus heals a paralyzed man in order to prove that he has authority to forgive sins. And this blows the minds of the people in the home in Capernaum. The main idea of this text is plainly before us in the text as we read it in a moment. You'll see that Jesus, the Son of Man, God in human flesh, has authority, meaning He has the ability and the divine prerogative to forgive sins. In response to this truth, I hope that we would, one, place our faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins, that we would also glorify God for the wonderful work that He does in forgiving us our sins, and that we would strive to point others to Jesus that they might know this forgiveness too. Let's stand as we honor God by reading His Word. Mark 2, 1-12. through 12. This passage, this event in Jesus' life is also relayed to us in two of the other Gospels, uh, Matthew chapter 9 and also in Luke chapter 5. You find similar accounts there, but today we're reading Mark's accounting of it. Mark, the ministry partner of Simon Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes these words. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. 
But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word. You may be seated. Jesus, the Son of Man, God in human flesh, has authority to forgive sins. I often like to, it's not right in me, so I'm confessing sin in my heart. I love this passage. I love this event in Jesus' life. I love what it displays, but for all the many very different reasons than what I often hear people preach about when they preach Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Most of the time, most of the sermons that I've heard from people who preach, and it's not wrong, it's just not quite the exact point, is that the point of Mark, they want to say the point of Mark chapter 2 is do whatever it takes to get people to Jesus. You got four friends tore a roof in a house to get their friend to Jesus. You do the same. Friends, that's not the main idea of this text. The central point of Mark chapter 2 is not do whatever it takes to get to Jesus, although it's not not that either. But the central point of Mark chapter 2 is this. Jesus, the Son of Man, God in human flesh, has authority to forgive sins. That's the point. So let's see how Mark fleshes this out for us. And we're just going to kind of take the text as it comes to us. In verses 1 and 2, we see, first of all, the crowd. The crowd that is gathered again. Jesus, we're told, is back in Capernaum, that Uh, that Galilean lakeside town where Simon Peter lived, where Jesus was just earlier in Mark chapter 1, preaching the word, and many people were coming to him. He was in a synagogue at one point, uh, teaching about the kingdom. You remember Mark's summary of Jesus' kingdom preaching in Mark 1.15? Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So he's preaching in the synagogue early in Mark chapter 1. A demon-possessed man is brought to him. He casts out the demon. The people are all in awe and wonder. Later, he goes to Simon Peter's house. He heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. And that afternoon, everybody, the people from all over town are bringing him sick and demon-possessed people. And he's healing them all over the place. And then he leaves to go do some preaching around Galilee. And now he's back in Capernaum again. When the people heard that Jesus was home, it's kind of interesting, we know that Jesus is from Nazareth, but here Capernaum is called his home. It's kind of it's his home base for his ministry. Likely the home that he is in is probably Simon Peter's home again, that same house where uh, Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And this scene feels a lot like the synagogue scene earlier in Mark chapter 1. The place is packed to hear Jesus teach. It's packed out even to the door, Mark tells us. Now, in that day, houses were relatively small. It was not, didn't take a lot to pack out a house. Maybe 25, maybe 30 people would pack out a house. Many houses might, might often uh, in those days have been about the size of a well-apportioned master bedroom in, uh, in our communities today. So it's a small house, but it's packed with people. And Mark doesn't tell us why the crowd came to Simon Peter's house on this day. I mean, Jesus is there. That's part of it. But he does tell us what Jesus is intent on doing while he's there. Not performing miracles, not healing people. Jesus is in the house teaching the word. Teaching them the word of the kingdom of God. As we said before from Mark 1, 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe the gospel. So here we have Mark opening this scene for us. A crowded house with lots of people listening to Jesus teach. 
And then the scene shifts very quickly in verses 3 to 5 to the main sort of source of conflict in this event in Jesus' life, the forgiveness of a paralytic. This scene gets very interesting very quickly. As now this house is packed out, four friends come to the house carrying their friend who is paralyzed on a makeshift pallet, on a bed of sorts. Now, they can't get into the house, it's too packed, and so they decide we've got to find another way to get in. So they decide to go to the roof. That's what an illogical person would do, right? Houses in that day, homes in that day, uh, were the, the, the living space of the house was not just within the walls. Often the roof of the house was a living, a working space, even a, a, a sort of relaxation and recreational area for many people. Uh, the, the roof was, were, roofs were flat in that day, and there would often be a staircase along the side of the house that would lead up to the roof. And in the heat of the day, uh, uh, people would go up on the roof to enjoy the breeze that was blowing by, uh, blowing by to cool off some. People would do their laundry. They would often bathe on the roofs of their house out of the sight of many other people. So these four men, not being able to get in through the door, they take the staircase up to the top of the house, and then they, as it doesn't come through in our English translations, but literally the phrasing that Mark uses is, they unroofed the roof. These four friends unroof the roof, which is made of a a series of uh, wooden beams, and then on top of that, some thatch, and then on top of that, maybe some pitch or some dried mud or even maybe sun-baked clay tiles. They unroof and dig through the roof, deconstruct Simon Peter's, maybe Simon Peter's house and drop their, well, lower their friend in through the roof to where Jesus was. This is an audacious audacious and, and fairly destructive act on behalf of these four friends. I know what we'll do. We'll just rip this guy's house apart. But they do it. Verse 5 says, As the man is lowered down, I can't even imagine what that would have looked like, but relatively low ceilings, not like as far, that would be a long way from ceiling here. Maybe eight, eight feet or so. Maybe not even that high. As this man is dropped down through the roof in front of Jesus, verse five says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, get up and go home. No. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Looking to John's gospel and other places of scripture, we find that it was common in that day for people to see the physical affliction of others like paralysis, like diseases, uh, like infirmities, like blindness. And they would see those infirmities, those afflictions, those diseases as a result of sin in an individual's life. God is punishing you, they thought, or must be, for something that you have done. Or maybe even something that your parents have done. In John's Gospel, chapter 9, there's an issue of a a man who is born blind. And Jesus heals this man. The question is, in John chapter 9, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Why does he have this infirmity? Jesus says it's not about any of that at all. It's just so that the glory of God will be displayed But here we have this instance where there's this paralyzed man stricken with an infirmity and Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. Now we don't know if the paralytic here was born paralyzed from birth or if he was paralyzed by an accident. But in either case, it's not outside the realm of plausibility for the scribes and the other people who are gathered in that house that day 
to have thought that this man was paralyzed because of some sin in his life. So when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, many in that home may have been thinking, may may have been making that very visible connection between a person's physical infirmity and sins that were behind it. This points us to a deeper reality, not just in the life of Jesus, but for all of us, that the paralytic's greatest need As he's presented before Jesus in this house, his greatest need, as Jesus sees it, is not to walk. The greatest need that Jesus sees for this man is for his sins to be forgiven. Friends, we cannot escape the reality that Scripture persistently and consistently reminds us of that what we need most in this life is forgiveness of sin and salvation from sin and death. That's what we need most. Jesus says to this man, Son, your sins are forgiven. I don't want us to miss, though, the first part of verse 5. Verse 5 begins, When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Faith, that Greek word, pistis, that Mark would have used or did use in writing this. Faith is the, in the course of the Scriptures, is the expectation, the confident hope, that God will exercise divine power to address a critical need. It's a total trust and dependence on God to do what only God can do at a critical moment, at a critical juncture in the life of an individual or of a people. The friends, these four men who unroofed Peter's roof, by their bold destruction of the house, these friends demonstrate an expectation that Jesus will exercise divine power to do something for their friend. Now, Jesus doesn't give them precisely maybe what they're seeking. I think that like the many who were brought to Jesus in Mark 1 and were healed of their various infirmities and diseases, that these four friends want their friend to be healed and they're trusting Jesus to do this. Jesus doesn't give them that. Not right away. Rather than giving the man physical wholeness, Jesus gives this man spiritual forgiveness. This passage illustrates a beautiful, consistent gospel truth to us. That forgiveness of sin comes by faith in God who forgives. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Follow with me just five essential truths about God and sin and forgiveness from Scripture. First of all, know this. Be affirmed in this. Yes, God is forgiving. God is forgiving. It's in His nature. It's who He is. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, God reveals Himself to Moses, speaking about His own character to that leader of Israel. And He says to Moses, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Forgiveness is part of who God is. He delights in forgiving sin. Know that today. Second, know also the reality of sin. That sin, transgression, immorality is always ultimately against God, our Creator. And it's His forgiveness that we need most. And when we sin, when we do what is wrong, we also sin against human beings. Yes, of course. But our sin is ultimately against God who created us in His image to know and love and worship Him. It is His design for our flourishing that we despise and we set aside and we overrun every time that we sin. 
David writes in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, uh, assuring us, assuring himself of this reality. He says, and this is in the context of his adultery with Bathsheba and then his conspiring to have Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed in battle. So he's an adulterer and a murderer. He has he has imposed himself uh, in inappropriate ways upon this woman, and he's had her husband killed. He has sinned against people, but in his prayer of confession, he says in Psalm 51 to the Lord, "I know my transgressions; my sin is ever before me. I can't hide it." He says to the Lord, "Against you, you only." It doesn't mean necessarily only God; like his sin doesn't extend to people, but God most of all. Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Yes, God is forgiving. But our sin is always ultimately against this forgiving God, this holy God. And it's His forgiveness that we need most. Third, we come to understand as we're working through the Bible that under the old covenant, that covenant of God's law that is there for us in Genesis through Deuteronomy, particularly in Leviticus, you're all stuck there right now in your Bible reading plans this year. But under the old covenant, there was forgiveness of sins by God for those who offered sacrifices in faith and trust to God, who gave this sacrificial system as a provision for their forgiveness until a better sacrifice would come. The way that God would assure people of their forgiveness of sin is that they would take the imposition or take the consequences of their sin, which is death, and place it on another, a substitute in their place, an animal that would die for their sins. And God would say, in so doing, and with faith in me to forgive, I will forgive you. The author of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 20, verse 22 says this, Indeed, under the law, that old covenant, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So the good news is that God is forgiving. That we ultimately need His forgiveness more than anything else. And God provided under His first covenant with the people of Israel a way that that folks could be assured of their forgiveness of sins as an animal took their death in their place for it. There's a better hope. A newer hope though still. Yes, there's forgiveness under the old covenant, but the new covenant that God promised in Jeremiah 31 would bring with it the promise of a permanent forgiveness. A forgiveness that wouldn't need ongoing sacrifices. Every time a person was aware of their sin and need for forgiveness for everyone who would trust God for it. In Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, we hear these words. God says to the prophet, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer shall each one know his Each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The wonderful reality of this new covenant promise that God gives permanent forgiveness to those who trust in Him is that that permanent forgiveness is not attained by a better animal it's attained by a better sacrifice a holy sacrifice a divine sacrifice on the part of human beings this is a forgiveness that is secured by jesus himself hebrews chapter 9 verses 13 to 15 says this if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh how much more will the blood of christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will His blood purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Yes, God is forgiving. Our sin is ultimately against Him and we need His forgiveness. God provides a means of being forgiven through the old covenant sacrificial system, but He also gives a promise of a permanent forgiveness that, is, that, that will be provided in a better sacrifice, His Son Jesus. And the good news for us today is this, that forgiveness of sins, what that paralytic man needed most, is given today to all who believe, to all who trust to all who have faith in Christ to do something for them they could not do for themselves. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25 says this. The Apostle Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All the people in that house in Capernaum that day, all the people in this room, all the people hearing my voice today have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That means made right with God by His grace as a gift through the redemption, the rescue that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. When He saw their faith, He said to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. In light of what Jesus does for this paralyzed man in this house, know this today and don't be mistaken about it. Your greatest need is forgiveness of sins. And the greatest news Scripture has for you is this, that Jesus has forgiveness for you. Your greatest need is forgiveness of sin, and Jesus has forgiveness for you. Know this this morning. Seal it in your head. Move it to your heart. That your greatest need is not physical healing, although that may be a legitimate need. But your greatest need is spiritual wholeness through forgiveness of sins. Jesus here in Mark chapter 2 is demonstrating that He is not the God of moral therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. He is not a God who merely calls us to do better. He is not a God who merely helps us to feel better. Nor is He a God who otherwise leaves us alone. He confronts our inability to be righteous. He confronts the reality of sin. He calls us to see our need to be cleansed and forgiven of sin. And then, He doesn't leave us on our own to figure it out. No, friends, He acts on our behalf to make that forgiveness available to any who will trust Him. Forgiveness is not, understand, it is not God excusing your sin. Ah, no big deal, we'll move on from this. That's not what forgiveness is. It is God recognizing the absolute and utter ugliness of your sin and that there is no good deed that could overcome or overwhelm or or make up for your sin. And then taking the offense of your sin on Himself by sending His Son to die for your sins, God then no longer counts your sins against you when you have faith in Jesus as that sacrifice. Forgiveness is not God excusing your sin, saying it's no big deal. Forgiveness is God saying your sin is a big deal. In fact, bigger than you could ever understand or recognize, but here's how I'm going to take care of it for you. We all need forgiveness like this. To have our sins truly known, our sins unhidden before God, 
And then in repenting of our sin and clinging to Christ to know that these sins are no longer held against us by the great and holy God and judge of creation. We all need forgiveness like this. Jesus says to the paralytic, after seeing the faith of his friends, son, your sins are forgiven. Now the story gets better. Because now the attention moves from Jesus and the paralytic to some other people in the room, to the scribes there in verses 6 and 7. These are these experts in God's law, those first five books of the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible called Torah. In our Bibles, we know them as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These scribes, these experts in what God has said, begin asking important questions about what Jesus has just said and done. Now these scribes know all that was true of God's forgiving character. They knew Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. They knew their human need for forgiveness. They were acquainted with the Psalms and the recognition that David had, that his sin was ultimately against God. And they knew that God alone could forgive sins. They understood all of that. They are connecting the dots that Jesus is laying out for them here. They catch that Jesus, in declaring this paralytic man to be forgiven apart from priestly authority, under the law to do so, that Jesus is taking for himself an authority and prerogative that only God can rightly be said to have. Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's a Judahite. The Levites were the ones that were called to be priests, not the Judahites. And here's a Judahite in Jesus saying to this man, assuring this man of his forgiveness of sins. The scribes, putting together these pieces, say, this is blasphemy, isn't it? He's using, he's, or misusing the name of the Lord for his own personal gain or, or maybe to the, the derision of God's name. He's not using God's name and authority the right way. He's doing this all wrong. This is blasphemy, isn't it? Let's be careful to note that Mark is not yet painting these scribes in such a bad light. Now, they'll be, they'll be described more negatively as Mark's gospel goes on, as, as these people who question who Jesus is and what he is doing begin to become hard-hearted and more recalcitrant and more antagonistic toward Jesus. But they're not quite yet painted so darkly. For now, these scribes who are gathered together to hear Jesus teach in the home, by the way, to begin with, they, be, they appear to be asking a legitimate question. Who does this guy think he is? He's... A, He's equating himself with God. What? Just a minute ago, he was teaching God's word and about the kingdom to us, and we we're okay there. But now he's saying something else. I'm, I don't know if we're okay with this. Are we okay with this? I don't think we're okay with this. Theirs is a question of authority. Who has authority to forgive sins? Only God. But here's Jesus saying this man's sins are forgiven. What? They know that God has ultimate authority to forgive sins to wipe them away from an individual's record forever. And they know that God has authorized priests under the old covenant to assure the people of his forgiveness as they carry out God's instruction for faithful sacrifice. But Jesus isn't a priest. And this man, this paralytic man, has been dropped through the ceiling, has brought no sacrifice. And what Jesus says, assuming he isn't God, is blasphemous. But what if Jesus is God? Only only God has authority to forgive sins. This man's blaspheming, isn't he? Isn't he? Is he? 
the scene now shifts back from the scribes, the secret thoughts of the scribes, now to Jesus, the Son of Man, in verses 8 through 11. Mark tells us that Jesus, in his spirit, knows what the scribes are thinking. Now, I don't, in some sense, we are getting a, an inward look into the divine knowledge that Jesus, God in flesh, has of people around him. At the same time, I think we're also getting a look at just maybe the, the genius of the Jesus, the, the human genius of Jesus, that it doesn't really take a whole lot when you've got a bunch of experts in the law. It doesn't take a whole lot to figure out what they're going to be thinking when you say something that you know is going to be controversial to them. Nevertheless, Jesus in his spirit knows what the scribes are thinking, so he turns, without even them saying it out loud, he turns to ask them a really interesting couple of questions. He first of all says, why are you questioning this in your hearts? Why are you, why are you asking these questions? Who has authority to forgive sin but God alone? It's almost as though Jesus expects these scribes to have already understood something else. They've been listening to him teach in Capernaum for some time, at least that day, and, and probably earlier when he was in the synagogue, uh, back in chapter 1 as well. It's like Jesus expects them to have already put together some pieces of, from what he was teaching and what he was doing that they hadn't yet put together yet. Just like, Jesus like, after everything you've seen and after everything you've heard, you're questioning what's going on here? So then he asks them a second question. I love that Jesus doesn't even give them a, a chance to respond why are you asking these things in your hearts? He says, what's easier to do? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say to this paralyzed man, get up, pick up your mat, and go home? What's easier to do? Now the assumption, the way that Jesus frames it, is that the first thing is easier. It's easier to tell a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Because that statement isn't testable. It's not provable. There's, there's no scientific experiment you can carry out and to, to, to be able to observe and, and affirm with your own eyes and in an tangible way that a man's sins are forgiven. In fact, never was that ever the case. God always said you'll have forgiveness when you offer these sacrifices in faith. So for anyone to say your sins are forgiven, it's an audacious thing to say, but no one can really test whether it's true or not. So what's easier to say? Son, your sins are forgiven? Something that nobody can, can actually see with their eyes happening? Or to tell this paralyzed man something really bold, like get up and walk. Which is harder? It's harder to say to the paralyzed man, get up, pick up your bed, go home, because it is immediately provable whether the one saying that to the paralyzed man actually has authority to say it and expect it to happen. If you say to a paralyzed man, get up, pick up your bed, go home, and he doesn't, you are the biggest jerk in the room. <laughs> but if you walk up to somebody and say, your sins are forgiven, well, who knows if that's true or not? So Jesus says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell this man, be healed, get up, go home? And then Jesus offers his own answer to the question. Which is easier, this or this? But so that you know, he doesn't even give the scribes a chance to speak. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, the harder thing. Get up, pick up your bed and go home. Now for a moment, let's take a slight detour into this title that Jesus refers to himself. Uh, Son of Man. 
It's a favorite title for himself in all of the Gospels. Now Mark introduces us to Jesus in Mark 1 as the Christ, the Son of God. But now here Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. It'll show up a, a lot more in the latter half of Mark's Gospel. Shows up regularly throughout the other Gospels as well. In Jesus, calling himself the Son of Man is pulling on two Old Testament references in doing this. On the one hand, he's pulling on Ezekiel, that Old Testament prophet, who all throughout what Ezekiel is prophesying to the people of Israel, God regularly calls Ezekiel Son of Man, so as to remind Ezekiel of his humble humanity. You are just a man. At the same time, there's also in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel the prophet, as he's in exile in Babylon, has this heavenly vision of, as we read in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, he says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. It's a title for God and his eternality. And he was presented before him. And to him, to this one like the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that all people and nations and languages would serve him. His dominion, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. This Son of Man figure, who's presented before the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, is a divine figure who has an everlasting kingdom. He shares in the very same divine substance as the Ancient of Days, and he is given authority and dominion over all things and all peoples. It seems that when Jesus says, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he's pulling on both of these. It's an ambiguous reference. He's referring to the Son of Man from Ezekiel. He's human. But also this figure like a Son of Man in Daniel 7. He's divine. Jesus is God in flesh. And He says to these scribes, so that you know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, I say to the paralytic, the harder thing, Bubba, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And now His authority is testable. It's provable or disprovable, isn't it? Jesus has said the harder thing. If what Jesus says doesn't take place, he is literally the biggest jerk in the room. But what happens? Immediately, the man gets up, picks up his bed, and goes home. Jesus, the Son of Man, can forgive sins because he is God. That's the question that the scribes are asking. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, yep, Exactly. And here's how I'm going to prove it. Not by saying the easy thing, but by doing the hard thing. Understand this morning, in light of the main point of this passage, Jesus, the the Son of Man, God in flesh, know this, that Jesus can forgive sins because He is God. Because He is the holy, righteous creator and judge of the universe. Because He has all authority as God, He can say to those who trust Him, your sins are forgiven. Friend, if ever you are tempted to think that Jesus was simply a good teacher, or maybe even a prophet of some sort, but not God, not divine, you should be directly confronted by what Mark is saying very clearly about Jesus here. He's not mincing words. Jesus is not another guru. He's not another spiritual guide. He is God Himself in flesh. And I get it. You may doubt that Jesus is God. You may be saying in your hearts, 
That's too easy to just say that Jesus is God. It's, it's crazy even. There, we know that no man is actually God. And to that end, Scripture offers us a similar line of questioning to what Jesus offered the scribes. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven? Or to say this man get up and walk? Which is easier? To say Jesus is God? For Jesus to say that He is God? Or for Jesus to say that He would die and rise again from the dead? Which is harder? Which is easier to say? It's one that anybody can say. People still say it today. I am God. I haven't met a person yet who has claimed that they will die and then be raised again from the dead on their own authority. Yet Jesus does. Jesus not only asserts that He is divine, He also says the Son of Man will be raised again on the third day. I submit to you that Jesus proves His claim to be God Not by doing the impossible thing of merely raising a paralytic from the ground, but by raising his own life from the dead after offering it for the forgiveness of sins. There is no other guru, there is no other spiritual guy that has ever provided any more compelling evidence than this. Jesus can forgive sins because he is God in flesh. Are you this morning incredulous like the scribes who think that Jesus is a nutcase? Or worse, a self-deluded egomaniac? If that's the case, I implore you, investigate the Bible's claim to Jesus' resurrection. Because if Jesus is really raised from the dead like he said he would, he has proved, he has done the harder thing to prove the easier statement that he is divine. A great book for you to maybe begin with in in exploring the claim of Jesus' resurrection to prove that he is divine is a book by Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. There's no other claim that is more important to test than this that Jesus is God. Because if it's true, it changes everything. And on that day, in that small house in Capernaum, Jesus changed everything for the people who are watching it go on. In verse 12, the scene shifts now back again to the crowd. We started with the crowd, we end with the crowd. As the scene closes, and as this paralytic man is walking out of the house, the whole rest of the place erupts in praise and worship. The people say, we never saw anything like this. Nothing like a teacher with authority like this. Nothing like a man with the boldness to declare sins forgiven. Nothing like a man who proves his power to forgive sins by restoring a paralytic man's legs. Nothing like a man who can silence and persuade the scribes with a simple word and demonstration of his power. We've never seen anything like a man who is no less than God in human flesh among us, with us, bringing the kingdom of heaven with him. And these people in this house, witnesses to this beautiful display of Jesus' divinity and humanity, his, his power over sin and over physical infirmity, these people respond just the right way to such a beautifully powerful demonstration of the grace of God. They worship. What else is there to do? There's no cameras to take selfies with or post on social media. And even if there were, That still would not be the best first thing to do. The best first thing to do is say, who is God like this? Who is this this God who who imbues His his Son with such authority and and power, who who, who comes in human flesh and heals paralyzed people and demon-oppressed people and sick people and also forgives sins? In light of all that Jesus proves about who He is, the Son of Man, God in flesh, who has authority to forgive sins. I have one question for you. What is your response to Jesus? 
Assume yourself to be in that house that day. How would you respond to Jesus? Knowing all that you know about the good news of the gospel, that Christ gave his life so that your sins might be forgiven and raised his life from the dead, that you might have hope and expectation be made right with God when you trust in him. All that you know about the gospel of Jesus Christ, are you brought to wondrous worship at this God, to this God who forgives? Are you, like these people in Mark 2, exploding in praise because of what God does? Are you brought to joy for the reality that you've been forgiven of sins because you're depending on Jesus for it? If that's the case, and you are worshiping in in light of all that you know that Jesus has done for you in his death and resurrection, are you then like these very good friends? Removing obstacles for your lost and spiritually helpless friends so that they might know Jesus too? And not just to be healed of physical infirmities. No, something much better. Not to know Him for little things like just being happier or healthier, but knowing Jesus for big things, impossible things like forgiveness of sin and a clear conscience and a right relationship with the only holy God. Are are you like these good friends who believe Jesus can do something for your lost friends that neither you nor they can do for themselves? And are you removing every obstacle in the path that you have power to do so that they might see Jesus? Are you here in this place today saying to yourself, I'm like that man on that bed in that home. I need forgiveness. Hear me. There is pardon for sin. There is peace of heart for you today if you know your greatest need is forgiveness of sin. So come to Christ today in faith that he can do something about it, that he has done something about it. The same Jesus who provides forgiveness by his death for sins was raised to life and taken again to heaven from where he will one day return and where he today lives to make you right with God, to save you from your sin, to save you from death if you'll trust him. Will you come to him? That's the question. Will you trust him? Will you submit your whole life in following him? Will you be saved? Will you be forgiven? In a moment, I'm going to pray as we close our time in God's Word and we're going to move to worship, singing in response to God's Word. Here's my invitation to you during that time of of response and singing. First, if you've already known and you're rejoicing in the wonderful forgiveness that Jesus, the Son of Man, has given to you because your faith is in Him, because He is your Lord, because you've turned from sin to give your whole life to Him, then use this time as we respond in song to pray for those in your life who need to know the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Second, as we sing this song, if you're in the position like this paralyzed man, this event in Jesus' life, if you need Christ's forgiveness today, and you know that you need that more than anything else, use this time of worship today to ask Him. Come and Wherever you are in life, whatever your response needs to be, come and, 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 and pray up here at these steps. There's nothing holy. There's no rails or anything to keep you away. There's nothing, nothing special about these steps, but there's something special. There's something meaningful about moving and laying ourselves, kneeling before God to say, God, help. Maybe you'll come pray up here at these steps. Maybe you just need to kneel at your seat. Maybe you just need to stand and lift your arms in desperation to, in faith to the only God who can meet the need that 
It's plaguing your heart. The need of salvation for that lost friend or family member. The need of forgiveness that you need even today. I'll be standing here at the front even as we sing just off to the side. Come pray with me. But let us not leave this place without rejoicing in and responding to Jesus, the Son of Man, God in flesh, who has authority to forgive sins. Let's pray and then respond as God leads us.